This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Uh, Coach Hogg here in the Manlier Warthog Man Cave. In the piney woods of North Central Florida, by golly, God's country in the Melton Law Studio. Melton Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators, the Fighting Gators, and a full-service legal firm. We're protected 24-7, 365 by, guess who? Crime Prevention. Randy L. Rad and John Pastore, locally owned, get that, you want that. You want to be locally protected. And, of course, all our great sponsors here who are loyal to us, be loyal to them. Uh, right now, I am uh, tuning in my own show here a little bit to see who's with Hi, me. And I got a little bit of noise so, here, feedback. Let me get rid of that. There we go. And good morning, everybody. Matt Cannon, Ken Hillier, Larry Nagel. You guys are early to class. You're going to get the A's, okay? Well, 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 quite a number of things to talk about today. It's um, interesting because it's kind of a a dry news cycle. And the way to think of this is Donald Trump has sucked all the air out of the room. If they don't have Donald Trump to write about, and this goes back to 2016, they haven't had anything to write about. And now that they think they've got him in a quandary, or indictments, I ran out of fingers and toes, this, that, one thing, and another, and they're just waiting around to see how these ticking bombs blow up, they don't have anything to write about. And if you go out and check these various news services, you'll see it's rather bland. But in Coach Hogg's locker room, I've got to tell you that I witnessed something. Of course, I wasn't the only one to witness it. Four hours yesterday it took, just right at four hours. Mono to mono. A tennis match between Djokovic, Alcaraz, Alcaraz, 20 years old. Djokovic, 36, I think. In a incredible display of athletic, all the above. Everything. You name it. Heat stroke. 
three or four changes of uniforms, soaking wet. Back and forth, back and forth. This was a tournament championship at the Western Financial Open, which is in Cincinnati, which is the oldest tennis tournament in the country, 1896, I think. And just let me give you an idea of what it's like to be the best tennis player in the world. Can you imagine all the players at every level in every community who play this game? And you're the best. There's a young man named Max Purcell. His story of how he got into the tournament and eventually worked his way into the quarterfinals, maybe the semis, I don't remember, but I know the quarter. He had to Uber from Canada to Cincinnati. He started as Mason, Ohio. He started his trek to Mason. He was scheduled to play in the first round of singles qualifying last Saturday, a week ago, yesterday, um, this last Saturday. Let me explain a little bit how these tournaments work. If you're not, if you haven't accumulated enough points to get in, just on your name and your record, you, have, you can get in if you qualify. That means you start playing at the lower ranks and you start winning. You may get a spot, which he did get. He's from Australia. And he did quite well. But he had to go through the qualifying. He couldn't find a flight. And he didn't have enough money for a rental car. It takes money to stay out there long enough to get points. He took a four-hour Uber ride from Toronto to the Windsor, Ontario, Detroit border. He was two miles from at least being in the right country for this Western Southern match, but Uber wouldn't cross the border. And so Purcell and his coach literally were left on the side of the road. He was turned down by multiple taxis. And finally he got one that took him to Detroit after midnight on Saturday morning. And after he had an hour of interrogation from Border Patrol. So that threw him off on his leg from Detroit to Cincinnati. So he ditched plans for an Uber and he was able to book a flight to Cincinnati that left at 8.30 a.m. Saturday morning. He checked into the 
airport hotel at 1.45 a.m., slept for four hours, then was back in time to board, and he arrived in Cincinnati without warming up and beat number 12 seed qualifier, Luca Van Ash, in three sets after dropping the first. You tell me, my man. You tell me how much that meant to him. Now, the person who won it, let me just explain to you how these tournaments work to give you a little background. This tournament in Cincinnati just had gone from a 500-point tournament to a 1,000-point tournament. Points are what you get that rank you. And when you get ranked, your life can become easier in that you get more amenities, you get better practice courts, you possibly get seated. So everybody's competing for points. Now, there are four Grand Slam tournaments. And if you are the winner of a Grand Slam tournament, you get 2,000 points. There are nine 1,000-level ATP tournaments, which the Western Financial just became. So it was bringing the big names in. It had been last year a 500-level, which meant you got 500 points for winning. There are 11 of those tournaments in the world, and there are 42 250-point tournaments, and that's how you get in, and that's what you play, and that's what you strive to do. Right now, the person with the most points is this 20-year-old Alcaraz. What a fantastic event that was. Four hours. Can you compute that? I felt so bad because I sat in my easy chair for four hours and didn't move because I couldn't leave a room. Something exciting would happen. Meanwhile, there's an interesting story about the Green Bay Packers and the New England Patriots. They had a preseason game Saturday night. It was suspended early in the fourth quarter after a New England rookie cornerback, Isaiah Bolden, absorbed a hit from a teammate that led him to being immobilized and placed on a stretcher and carted off the field. Well, it was so traumatic since it was pregame. Patriot coach Bill Belichick said, we're going to call, we're calling the game off right now. So with 10 minutes and 20 seconds remaining in the fourth quarter, referee John Hussey announced to the crowd at Lambeau Field that at the agreement of both head coaches and team leadership, they elected to suspend the game for the evening. The game became officially over. Uh, this was a unprecedented moment, as far as I know, 
in the NFL. And, of course, it brought back memories of DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills who suffered cardiac arrest on the field during Monday Night Football. It was back on the field, by the way. So this was um, a real traumatic moment for the NFL. And he actually collided with a teammate. And then once they collided, he remained on the ground and the medical personnel arrived and all that. But uh, that is sort of unheard of. Wanted to call your attention to that. That is now how people are thinking in these games. You don't want to hear footsteps, but they are taking precautions. Now, apparently he's been released from Green Bay Hospital. He's undergoing a series of evaluations. He was held overnight for observations, and he's been released, and he's going to be okay, it looks like. He's a 23-year-old. He was a 245th pick overall in the 2023 draft. And um, it is um, interesting that um, the NFL stopped. I mean, it was really, really something. Meanwhile, just a real up-to-date on coaches in college. There are some coaches on the hot seat in college. Uh, Justin Wilcox, California Golden Bears. Mel Tucker, Michigan State. Greg Schiano of Rutgers. Um, hot seat. Butch Jones, Arkansas State. Dino Babers, Syracuse. But the probably the most interesting one of these coaches that is uh, kind of, well, it's not shocking, but it's, uh, it's something to watch. And that is Texas A&M. Texas A&M has, of course, the coach that used to be at FSU and things have not gone apparently as splendidly as um, they would like the things to go at Texas A&M. They've pumped a tremendous amount of money in there. Uh, They have got... uh, Jimbo Fisher, and there you go. The pressure to do well with these coaches, of course, is astronomical. If you're concerned about Napier, apparently he's okay. They're going to hang around and watch to see if his analytical approach to the game and all that business will really bear fruit. And it will really be the thing, of course, the Gators are always looking for. And that's the elusive um, kind of magical kingdom where everything will turn out all right, I guess, you'd have to say. 
So in the sporting world, the only other sport, which is probably, you may even play it, which is grabbing the attention of everybody, is pickleball. And um, pickleball is spreading across the nation and becoming very popular, and people of all ages are playing it. I don't think it will ever rival, ever rival. Impossible. What we saw yesterday in the Cincinnati Open, a four-hour singles match between two top athletes cramping and coming out of the cramps and determined and not giving up. It's an amazing moment to look at. The tennis world here, just to close out that section, has a person out on the tour who's in the top 40, Ben Shelton who was the NCAA singles champ and whose dad was the coach for the University of Florida men's tennis team who gave up that job to travel with his son. So uh, how do you do a pickleball game? I don't know. Never played it. So I was talking about Plantation Mark here. Meanwhile, I want to cover some stories in education. And California is being set up, you know, as kind of an antithesis to Florida. And its governor is being, no secret about it, shaping up to be the objective corollary of DeSantis. Because after all, they could face off. But in California's education system, I'm going to get in the education system comparing California and what we're getting about DeSantis because they're trying to depict DeSantis, you know, as a racist, as somebody who has destroyed black history, as somebody who is um, all the above, And of course, contrastingly, Newsom is this diversity, equity, and inclusion guy, right? The Wall Street Journal has focused on mathematics in a column in California. A column about mathematics in California. And The title of math in California is Teaching for Equity and Engagement. Teaching for Equity and Engagement. Yeah, you heard it right. Now, that is totally antithetical to what DeSantis is doing with education here, teaching for meritocracy here. But he's being slammed. Newsom is being praised. Keep that in mind. 
the objective of this approach is, quote, structuring school experiences for equity and engagement and supporting educators in offering equitable and engaging mathematics instruction. So the guidelines in this approach in California now, and I'm putting this in the conversation because you may have to vote on a a choice here with Newsom and DeSantis. The guidelines in this approach in California demand that math teachers, math teachers, quote, be committed to social justice work, end quote, to, quote, equip students with a toolkit and mindset to identify and combat inequities, are you ready, with mathematics. Huh? That's what we're supposed to be doing? California's education bureaucracy. According to the journal, is seeking to reinvent mathematics as a study in grievances. And what the premise is in California is that when you have unequal math performances in education, some guys flunk it, some guys do well, it's proof, are you ready for this, of a racist society. Hello. Unequal outcomes in mathematic computations in classes are an indication of a racist society. Now, when this occurs, according to California, mental health problems arise in these low-achieving students who don't do poorly because they don't do well in math. They do poorly because the math is racist, okay? It completely skirts the issue that some students simply are better at math than others. So to close the gap in California, the new framework eliminates calculus, which holds talented students back. And the framework recommends, furthermore, that Algebra 1 
not be taught in middle school, which would force the course to be taught in high school. I've talked to teachers already. We teach it in the eighth grade. And the reason it affects calculus is if students all take algebra as freshmen in high school, there won't be time to take calculus in a four-year high school program. And the reason they don't want calculus taught is that if it's not taught, the best the, the gap between the best and the worst students, math students, will become, you got it, less visible. Students may take algebra one, arithmetic mathematics one in middle school, but the document still pushes students away from taking it early because of the racist component. So as it stands, students must either double up or enroll in a summer course to be able to take calculus or in California, they have to go to a private school. Which the students from the quote-unquote underprivileged backgrounds can't afford to do. California claims in this approach to be the champion you got it of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and is essentially, according to this analysis, turning mathematics into a social science course. Hello. Can you believe it? See, what they're trying to do is get around the end of affirmative action. Affirmative action was institutionalized reverse bias from the very beginning. It was put in place to get an absolute equality of result. And if the equality wasn't obtained, the institution was racist. There's a very extensive article here about this and analysis in AP. It certainly violated the spirit of the Declaration of Independence and the text of the Constitution. But don't let that fool these educators. They can find a way around it. Even if it means stigmatizing Asians.
which has happened, obviously. Keep your eye on these courses. After our break for the weather, I'm going to go into the smear job that's being done on DeSantis in education. I mean, it's amazing. Why is it being done? To nullify DeSantis as a possible presidential candidate. They already think they've got Trump nullified. But they're concerned about DeSantis. They're going to use the race card to do it. We'll be right back in the Ward Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. Attention all Gator fans, Melden Law is giving away a chance to experience the Florida-Georgia game like never before. Two nights stay at the Hilton on the River, dinner at Ruth Chris Steakhouse, two premium tickets to the game, and football signed by coach Billy Napier and much more. Go to the Melden Law Facebook page and look for the VIP experience for two. Good luck and go Gators! This is Ward Scott and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, Large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Stop Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com. And click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, thanks. Help me! 
Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. We're back here on Ward's Weather, by golly. Brought to you by Lewis Oil. Also fuel, Chevron stations, nothing wrong with it. Great support of the show. Gas up at Chevron. Well, these electric vehicles blow up, by the way. We've got a hot one coming there in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida right now. 80 degrees as we speak, going up in the 96, probably this whole week. Probably no rain this whole week to speak of, although we do have some disturbances coming across from from Africa and churning their way into the Atlantic. But it looks as if they'll cross over south of us and go over into the Gulf and maybe not dampen or darken our doors at all. You never know. You got to be prepared. So the rain event in California is really mostly a rain event, and it is wrecking havoc on that place because they're not ready for rain events. That soil will become mud, and that mud will slide, all the above. That seems to be the peril they're in right now from the hurricane, which is mostly rain rather than wind. Now, there is going to be a heat dome in central U.S. this week. Hey, I think we're going to be in it, too, here in the southeast. So govern yourself accordingly. Well, 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 before we took a break, I was talking about the contrast between California and Florida and DeSantis and Newsom. as backup preparation for Biden and Trump canceling each other in the presidential race. You know, it's going to be a strange day-by-day series of events. You're going to have to be light on your feet to follow all this and sort of be ahead of the game to see what they're setting up. Now, DeSantis was interviewed a while back, and, of course, he's always being interviewed, But, of course, they jumped on him about the state's education guidelines uh, that implied freed African-Americans benefited from chattel slavery. And, of course, you have to watch who's writing these things because they come as writers with a built-in prejudice and bias. There's no one really, I won't say no one, but there are very few people in the United States of America, who can talk about the South and race intelligently, accurately, historically, without interjecting something that completely taints the jury pool, so to speak. Or And these reporters are no, notorious for it. Uh, the development of the curriculum in education in Florida was done by a black historian. I looked at that curriculum. It's impressive. It's more impressive than anything I saw at Santa Fe College other than what I came up with. Because it truly is a diverse set of reading choices. And DeSantis is out there taking it on the chin. 
by people who don't know what they're talking about. Now, I want to go over rather carefully with you this article that came out Saturday in the Wall Street Journal about an issue you may not know anything about, but I'm going to go through it very carefully with you. It's written by a Marine infantry officer in Vietnam who was the Navy secretary from 87 to 88. And he's a U.S. senator from Virginia from 2007 to 13. He is a distinguished fellow at Notre Dame's International Security Center. And it's Jim Webb, a Marine infantry officer in Vietnam. He has identified a problem and has gone through it in a most accurate way. Probably one of the best arguments I've heard about monuments. You know, I was talking to a person a couple of days ago who is a professional at studying history and buildings and monuments and things, making arguments for their preservation. This person told me that when the white liberals in Gainesville got ready to move old Joe, which they did, the black folks and I'm not going to give you the names of them, but they're very prominent blacks in this community, said, leave it alone. It doesn't bother us. It's part of our history. Did you ever read that or hear that? Now, the Confederate Memorial at Arlington is the issue here. And a commission is going to tear it down by the end of this year if it's not confronted as a foolish action. So I'm going to go through with you Jim Webb's argument. He opens his article by saying, in 1898, 33 years after the end of the Civil War, which we in the South knew as the war against Yankee aggression, the Spanish-American War occurred. And Jim Webb says that it brought a sudden, unanticipated harmony and unity to a country that had been, of course, riven by war, because of the punitive post-war military occupation, which the North did to the South. And the reason the North did that was to create a wholesale societal reconstruction. But in the South, Webb says, American flags flew again 
as the sons of the Confederate soldiers volunteered to fight, even if it meant wearing the once hated Yankee blue, because President William McGinley saw that this was an opportunity to try to amend the the, the country's generational sectional divide. He, McGinley, had lived the Civil War. He served four years in the 23rd Ohio Infantry. He enlisted as a private, discharged in 1865 as a major. And he knew steps to take to bring the country together again. And as an initial signal, he selected three Civil War veterans to command the Cuban campaign. Two, William Rufus Shafter was given overall command of the Cuban operation. H.W. Lort, who led the 2nd Infantry Division, the first soldiers to land in the war. He had received the Medal of Honor fighting for the Union. The other, Fighting Joe Wheeler, was a legendary Confederate cavalry general, and he led the cavalry units in Cuba. He had been elected to Congress in 1880 from Alabama, and he was working hard to bring national reconciliation. So, four days after the Spanish-American War ended, McGinley proclaimed in Atlanta, which Sherman burnt to the ground, in the spirit of fraternity, we should share with you in the care of the graves of the Confederate soldiers. And that's how the Confederate memorial was born. The sculptor was Moses Jacob Ezekiel, He was a Confederate veteran. He was also the first Jewish graduate of the Virginia Military Institute. Now, on one face of the memorial, Jim Webb says, is the finest explanation of wartime service perhaps ever written by a Confederate veteran who later became a Christian minister. And here's what it says. Not for fame or reward. Not for place or for rank. Not lured by ambition or goaded by necessity. But in simple obedience to duty as they understood it. These men suffered all, sacrificed all, dared all, and died. That is on the Confederate Memorial. But in 2021, the National Defense Authorization Act, which was passed in the midst of a national racial and political upheaval, empowered a naming commission to, quote, remove all names, symbols, displays, monuments, and paraphernalia that honor or commemorate the Confederate States of America or any person who served voluntarily 
with the Confederate States of America from all assets of the Department of Defense. Now, Webb points out that the memorial was conceived with the sole purpose of healing the wounds in the Civil War and restoring national harmony. Huh? And then he goes through some details here that obviously the woke don't understand. I'll go through them with you because you don't hear them very often. What was it that the Union Army veteran, Webb asks, McGinley, what did he understand about the Confederate soldiers who opposed his infantry units on the battlefield that eludes today's monument smashers? McGinley's and his fellow soldiers understood the following, okay? That during the Civil War, four slave states remained in the Union. In the Union! Maryland, Delaware, where old Uncle Joe is from, Missouri, and Kentucky. And none of them was required to give up slavery during the entire war. Yankee states, Kentucky, okay. And that in every major battle of the Civil War, slave owners in the Union Army fought, get this now, fought against non-slave owners in the Confederate Army. Hello. They understood that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation did not free the slaves in those states in the Union. Or in the areas of the South that had already been conquered. The proclamation freed only slaves in the areas taken after it was issued. And in the eyes of a Confederate soldier, if Lincoln had not freed slaves in the Union, why should the soldier be vilified for supposedly fighting on behalf of slavery? John Hope Franklin is America's most esteemed black historian. And he has pointed out that in 1860, only 5% of whites in the South owned slaves. And less than 25% of whites benefited economically from slavery. An estimated 258,000 Confederate soldiers died in the war. And about a third of all those who fought for the South 
which was about a third of all those who fought for the South. Few, if any, owned slaves. So why did they fight? McGinley understood it, and why they fought is on that monument. Now, why does Jim Webb write about this? Because he says, and I see a Vietnam veteran on here, one of my good buddies. In 1992, as a private citizen and veteran of the Vietnam War, he was trying to begin a process of reconciliation with our former enemy. So he hosted a delegation of Vietnamese officials in Washington. And one of his objectives was to encourage Hanoi to make peace with the South. The Vietnamese veterans who had fought against the North and who after the war were labeled traitors, denied any official recognition as veterans and hundreds of thousands imprisoned in re-education camps. So Jim Webb, to make his point, he writes in this article, brought them to the Confederate Memorial and pointing across the Potomac River, the Arlington National Cemetery, toward the Lincoln Memorial, he told them about the purpose of that memorial. He said the Potomac River was like Ben Hay River, which divided North and South Vietnam. On the far side was our North, and here in Virginia was our South. He writes... that if you remove this memorial, you will contribute to the deterioration of our society. You will contribute to the bitterness and misunderstanding of history that the woke are trying to destroy. I thought that was a very, very interesting piece. A very interesting piece. I wanted to call your attention to it. You may Google and find it. It's called Save the Confederate Memorial at Arlington. You know, I asked production, my good buddy Zach, to pull up, and we're going to play it, even though it's got, we're a family show, and it's got a, oh, a mild little profanity in it. Who knows? Who cares? To pull up Oliver Anthony's viral working class anthem. And I knew exactly what he was talking about when I saw the title, Rich Men North of Richmond. Believe me, that Richmond is significant. Now this song, some of you may not have heard it yet, you're going to hear it in a minute, has dominated the iTunes chart, holds number one spot on Apple Music Global Charts, beats out Taylor Swift, thank goodness, 
the belief is that this song is popular because this singer understands and acknowledges the struggles that this elite class in D.C. could care less about. Zach, let's play it and see how it goes. Can we do it? I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world with an old soul. These rich men know the rich men. Lord knows it all. Just wanna have total control. Wanna know what you think. Wanna know what you do. And they don't think you know, but I know that you do. Cause your dollar ain't shit, and it's taxed to no end. Look out for miners And not just miners On an island somewhere Lord, we got folks in the street Ain't got nothing to eat And the whole beast Milking welfare God, if you're five foot three And you're three hundred pounds Taxes ought not to pay For your bags of fudge rounds Young men are putting themselves Six feet in the ground Cause all this damn country does Is keep on kicking them down Lord, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world with an old soul. These rich men know the rich men. you do and they don't think you know but I know that you do cause your dollar ain't shit and it's taxed to no end cause the rich men know the rich men Selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay. There's one simple hearing hack. All right, all right, back on the Ward Scott Files Live. Uh, I think mine broke up a little bit. I watched. We apologize for that. But you can go out and get it off of YouTube and uh, take a look at it. It's um, got a lot to do with what we just talked about. The, we've been talking about it all along in the words, Scott Fox. There's an acceptable narrative. If you don't participate in the acceptable narrative, well, you're going to be canceled. 
But there are people, you know, out there still not going to take this. And uh, we like to talk to you about it and make this an intelligent uh, conversation for you to be an intelligent voter. Have a great day. Warthog Command Center out.